0: I was trying to think about what would be like another alternative way to review papers. And so the idea was that every time a paper was published on archive, what I did is I automatically created a script that would like create a token, and it would issue like 100 tokens for that paper. And it would assign half the tokens to the authors of the paper equally. And then it would assign the rest of the papers, which would be sort of on the open market. And the idea was that if you liked the paper and you thought it was good and you thought it had potential, you would buy this token because you'd think that in the coming years, this paper would prove to be correct.
1: What's up everyone, Ray here. This is episode 109 and the first Health Unchained episode publicly published in 2023. So happy new year, everybody. I have a couple quick announcements I wanted to share with you before we get started with the episode. I'll be at d London on January 15th through the 16th to meet with some of the leaders at the quickly growing decentralized science space. If you're planning to be there, let me know so we can meet in real life. Health Unchained has launched a Supercast premium membership community where you can watch interviews before the rest of the public gets to listen to these conversations. You can find a link to our Supercast website in the show notes. Health Unchained is a media partner for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today Symposium in New Orleans, Louisiana, in September 2023. If you're interested in buying tickets or sponsoring the event, please reach out to me so I can coordinate with your team. In this episode, I speak with founder of DBDAO and leader of the DeSci New York City community, Michael Fisher. Michael is a Stanford University computer science PhD graduate and author of the book Regulating AI what everyone needs to know about artificial intelligence and the law we talk about the value of DSI and the details of using decentralized databases for storing and managing scientific data more permanently this was such a great conversation and i am thrilled to be able to share it with you i hope you all enjoy it remember the health unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and we are not providing any sort of legal financial or medical advice please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show.
0: What is blockchain? What is blockchain? Is, blockchain. is blockchain? what is blockchain? The doctor will see you now.
1: Today's guest is Michael Fisher, who is the founder of DBDAO, and they're doing some pretty cool things in terms of decentralized database building. So. I'm going to hand it off quickly to Michael to introduce himself a little bit more in detail and share some of his background as well. And then we'll dive deep into what he's building, a little bit about the d community and how that's growing and all things NFTs, AI. So I'm really interested in what you have to share with us today, Michael. Thanks for joining.
0: Thanks, Ray, for having me. I'm happy to introduce myself. I started DbDao. And before that, I was a PhD student We're at Stanford, where I was studying computer science and natural language processing. And then kind of after the PhD, I finished it, I moved out to New York and started DBDAO, just because sort of my interest in the blockchain and AI, and also decentralized science. So, you know, as a PhD student, I had a lot of experience writing papers and conducting research and coming up with new ideas and collaborating. There was ways to do it better, blockchain, smart contracts and stuff like that were really an important step in being able to conduct research in a more open and collaborative and democratized way. Prior to the PhD, I was an undergrad at Stanford, also studying computer science. I've written a book on regulating AI. I was the co-author of that, based on the class I was the teaching assistant for at Stanford Law School, now doing blockchain.
1: I know your background is in computer science. So you must have heard of blockchain many years ago or Bitcoin or something. What was like your first experience or exposure to blockchain technology? Do you remember?
0: Yeah, a couple of years ago, I started this uh, website. I saw like peer review as being something that blockchain could particularly help out with a couple of years ago. And early on, I I created this rally or roll, but for archive papers.
1: Hold on. What do you mean by that? A rally or roll?
0: Oh, so it's like a creator token. But the idea was that there's a lot of papers that are published on Archive. And the issue, though, is that there's no peer review. If you sort of are just looking at papers, you don't know what's a good paper and what's a bad paper. There's a couple different ways to sort of solve this problem. One is to use traditional peer review. One is to look at sort of metrics from Twitter or see which papers are being tweeted about a lot and use that as a signal to determine which are the interesting papers you should read. I was trying to think about what would be like another alternative way to review papers. And so the idea was that every time a paper was published on archive, what I did is I automatically created a script that would like create a token, and it would issue like 100 tokens for that paper. And it would assign half the tokens to the authors of the paper equally. And then it would assign the rest of the papers, which would be sort of on the open market. And the idea was that If you liked the paper and you thought it was good and you thought it had potential, you would buy this token because you'd think that in the coming years, this paper would prove to be correct. And then you would sort of be incentivized. You would have to be the holder of this token. And you could then trade that token for something else down the road. And the idea is like, because you had insight, and it's just like thinking about other incentives, because now there's like a marketplace of people that are sort of the adjudicators of truth on these papers. Of course, the other half of the tokens are for the authors, so if their tokens are worth a lot by some definition, then they get more reputation. So I built that out a couple of years ago using like really early web3 tooling when it was still very nascent and there weren't as many L2s. And so of course like it was very expensive to operate because you had to reissue these like smart contracts every time a paper was done. So in many ways it was much more of like a proof of concept and getting my feet wet with the underlying technology and through the incentives and mechanics. That was sort of my first experience
1: with. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about having papers that are impactful, essentially, is what you're saying. And there's a thing in science, it's called the impact score. So every paper that's published can be measured on how much it's used in future studies as well and how important the insights are from that study. So I'm imagining like the tokens that you generated over time, if the impact score of that article goes up, the value of the token kind of goes up with it. And the people that initially believed in the paper, and it made sense to them had that true like, awareness or insight. So they're rewarded for being able to make that call early on. That's kind of the general idea, right?
0: Exactly. And we'll talk about this more later, but there's money is like an interesting thing and how it relates to science. And sometimes a lot of scientists or projects don't actually want money, but they want sort of, impact certificates or something along the lines. But what's interesting is that you're using sort of market dynamics and economics to incentivize the finding of truth and the finding of good papers and not metrics like oftentimes people cite other papers to increase their score or try and game these impact things. Or this is why these Twitter thing doesn't really work either, because some things might just be clickbaity or published well or something or have like a meme attached, but that doesn't really create the good underlying science. So the idea here is obviously like a good impact score, like what you're talking about, will probably be some sort of linear combination of metrics on social media, this economic incentivized finding of truth, the peer review, and the impact score that you're like traditional impact scores. And then the idea was like, I think in the future, what you could do is like, based on the what you're trying to study, you could then dial in on each of these different metrics. To get to surface the papers that are interesting to you or that uh, are needed for, like, if you're just doing like far out there research on some very esoteric topic, maybe you want something different than if you're doing like drug discovery and there's a lot of risk involved or something. The idea is you could dial in the score and surf the specific papers that you want based on uh, these different types of scores.
1: Interesting. I just want to take a step back as well a little bit. You mentioned you moved from Stanford to New York City, and there you're starting to build a community around DCI as well. And DCI NYC is an organization you're leading. And I know they had an event last week as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm just, you know, I want to make sure people listening, if they're in New York, they have an opportunity to meet you in person, be part of some of the events you're hosting.
0: I first learned about DeSci and I learned about it through an in-person event at um, Funding the Commons. And after, I sort of marinated on that idea for a little bit. And I realized that the reason I found out about it was through this in-person event. I was able to talk to other people. And there wasn't really anything that was hosting these types of things in New York City and in- New York City is, in many ways, a great place to host DSI things because DSI is about bringing together people with disparate backgrounds and different experiences, and New York City is, in very much ways, a melting pot of people and ideas as well. So it seemed very natural to start hosting these things. We hosted one, and it's basically like two speakers, then a lot of, time and then time to speak. So we have like a, someone who's focused on science. So for the previous one, we had someone who was a someone who studies fungus. And they're using this website to find different and identify different mushrooms and name them. And they have this interesting way of determining what is what and people voting on it, which seemed interesting. It seemed like it could be a crossover with decentralized science. And then we have one on like decentralized science or Web3. It's just a really good way of bringing people together, spreading the word around desci and of course, everything is all recorded and posted online. And if you want to find out basically about the next events, we'll post them all at dbdao.xyz slash D-E-S-C-I-N-Y-C. Maybe we can put a link there. Or we have a link on our website. If you go to dbdao.xyz and there's a little tab for nyc. And then we have all our events there.
1: Awesome. I'm sure people will take a look at that as well. And you know, what's funny about science to me, it's always been to some degree, a decentralized thing, science in general, because if you believe we're all scientists, we're all conducting experiments, isolated or not, all the time in a certain way. Sometimes you even heard about discoveries being made in different parts of the world around the same time as well. So there's this idea of science is already a decentralized thing. However, in the last 30 to 50 years, it's sort of been the traditional system has centralized the process around publishing science. So what decentralized science is trying to do, what the movement is trying to do, in my view, is trying to take back that publishing centralization and make it decentralized, which is really tough to do. Because there are gatekeepers in terms of what should be published, what shouldn't. We don't want to publish quote unquote science that's not really well thought out designed experiments because then you have maybe even a generation of people following those systems or experiments and it's just creating bad science on top of bad science. So I do find what you're doing very important. Overall, I think the movement is incredibly important and it'll take a lot of time before we reach like the potential that we're thinking about or we're both envisioning here. But maybe what you could do now is sort of describe some of the problems in the traditional current system of science. And you kind of talked about it a little bit already, but things like research funding, patents, ownership, royalty distribution. And do you think that's part of what DBDAO is doing or what you're doing is.
0: What's interesting about DSI is it relates to publishing. But one easy way, I think, of describing a sort of the power of DSI is imagine a world in which you are a programmer. Before GitHub or before SourceForge or one of these sort of open source websites, you had to recreate everything basically yourself. So, if you wanted to build something, you'd have to rebuild the library and there would be no like cross collaboration, like coordination costs would be extremely high. If I wanted something, I might have to email someone and they might have to email me back their source. And it just like increased the time of doing programming. But with DSI, we were really trying to like lower the coordination cost of conducting collaborative research. What that means is instead of having to redo an experiment yourself or redo it, you just opt into a protocol that exists that is on chain. And the idea is you can sort of speed up science by creating these standardized formats or data formats or schemas or data pipelines or Jupyter notebooks or all sorts of various things. So I would say like DSI is around using like sort of open standards and Web3 technology, decentralized storage, decentralized compute decentralized funding, decentralized publishing, decentralized incentive mechanism to increase the speed at which science is conducted. Then in answer to your question about DBDAO, DSI runs the gamut from funding research, building teams. If you need to build a team, it would be helpful to just know know who else is an expert in that area, collecting data, In a standardized format, sharing the data in a standardized format, visualizing the data, analyzing the data, publishing the data. And then DBDAO relates to all the ethos of DSci because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create an open database standard for conducting science where the community comes around certain data schemas for different types of data points. And data is sort of uploaded into that. And data is shared between labs. And there's unified namespace where people can access data and link data between different databases. Data is preserved forever. So a lot of problems we're having with some sciences: the data disappears after 50 years. You no know, one knows where it went or you can't track the provenance, which machine it came from, if that machine has been calibrated properly, who is the researcher that conducted this experiment. It all gets lost. One of the nice things about the blockchain is that all that data is immutable. So in hopefully in around 50 years, IPFS and the Ethereum mainnet will all still be around. You know, you could just go back and repull that data and validate that a certain type of experiment has been conducted. So at DBDAO, we're sort of creating this sort of immutable database infrastructure for researchers to share data and conduct scientific research.
1: Awesome. So I have a bunch of questions related to that. So you know, many will argue, do you really need a blockchain? to store all this data. And you might have an answer or something like, well, we're not putting all the data on the blockchain. It's just like a pointer to the actual data and it's just managed that way. You can clarify that in a moment. I guess my question really is, why do we need a blockchain and why can't this be done by a centralized entity?
0: One thing that I think is interesting around how we conduct, one is the first is around incentivization. I have this concept of like negatively priced data. So what that means is, every piece of data, like right now, I want to store a piece of data on S3. I have to pay a small amount of money. But what really should happen is, I should get paid a small amount of money. So I should only pay if that data has no utility. If that data has negative utility, if that data has any amount of utility, let's assume that storage costs zero, like at the moment. Any amount of utility that that data creates should be paid back to the person that created it, or the incentive, the overall, the overlying hyperstructure that created it. If you need to pay these sort of small amounts to different people, in many ways, the easiest way to do that is through blockchain and through using one of the things that blockchains are really good at is paying people small amounts of money in a cheap, easy way across different borders and everything. like. And when I say money here, I don't mean money like dollars per se. It could also be impact certificates. It's just like some scarce digital asset that needs to be transmitted. So the first reason you need a database on Web3 is you want to be able to pay people for the data that they create. The Easiest way to do that, you don't want to link everyone's credit card to a database that's too time-consuming. So the easiest way to build that, given that we want to incentivize people is on the blockchain. The second reason is around data permits, especially for conducting science. You don't want this data to ever disappear. The idea that a hard drive crashes is very Web2 or Web1. If people choose to have their data live forever, for, and they think this is important for scientific applications, it should, so you want data permanence. You want data composability. A lot of like now, a lot of research labs conduct different experiments. The reason you can't link those two databases together really easily because they're on different namespaces, they're on different servers, but really you should just be able to link a hash of that one piece of data and link it to another hash of another piece of data and have cross database linking. So I could say like, I want to reference some experiment or some row in another database I should just be able to click on that row and link it and then put that link on the blockchain and have cross-database linkage. You want to be able to also sort of opt into the greater ecosystem of tokenomics that exists in Web3. You want to be able to, in that sense, tokenize data. So every row should be able to be bought and sold in the same way an NFT can be bought and sold. So if someone has a very popular row in a scientific database, and they want to get out of science, they want to buy a house or whatever, they should be able to take that NFT with that genome or with that image in it. And instead of selling a Bored Ape on OpenSea, you sell this image of this new thing that you have created that is generating a lot of revenue or IP. And so you want to be able to tokenize all the data that exists and then use that in these like larger DeFi protocols. Because any right now, a DeFi protocol just takes in an ERC, an NFT or an ERC-20 and then applies all this different leverage and staking. But there's no reason that that can't be done with data instead of just future promises of an underlying token. You wanna be able to encrypt the data and store it in a way where you own the keys. So maybe in a lot of examples, I might upload an X-ray or my genome or a health record. I wanna be able to protect that, not your tokens, not your keys, and uh, you have know, same thing, you want to be able to uh, do it with exact same uh, principle with data. So you'll be able to encrypt it yourself and only grant people access to that. And it's a little bit harder to do on web too. Traditional, uh, you want to be able to tie it to your wallet so your data should be tied back. To, you know, identity is changing and you want to be able to tie your data to your specific MetaMask wallet, in either anonymously, pseudo-anonymously, or with your real identity. And then lastly, like everything is going in Web3, we just need a Web3 alternative to traditional Mongo, Postgres, Firebase type databases, where it interoperates with multi-sigs, wallets, and sort of the larger ecosystem.
1: And that's what DBDAO was trying to do, is trying to create that Web3 version of MongoDB. And it's quite a task. I think we would both agree that's a big mission, but a very noble one, I guess I would say, in terms of trying to allow for users to build something that's decentralized a whole like database system that is decentralized maybe we can go into what do you think would be better to talk about the governance of the dao and the limits of decentralization or should we start to describe the stack of db dao first and then we can go into that
0: let's do the governance of the dao i think that's like pretty interesting in terms of how you create these ecosystems of data these data daos so basically like we have this concept of a database and we want to create a lot of really high quality data in this database. You don't want a lot of spam or messy data because that doesn't create value for anybody. Why is it called dbDAO? So each database is managed by a DAO and a DAO stands for a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is basically, there's a lot of different ways to describe a DAO, but I think one way is just like a group of people who are aligned towards some common goal. So a group of people aligned towards a common goal come together and they create a mission for a database. Let's say this mission is around finding plant leaves that are around the world. So this plant leaf DAO then creates a schema for the database. So they say our schema for our database is going to include an image. It's going to include when the specimen was collected and the location. Then they're going to create that database. And then they're going to come up with a structure of which data is going to be accepted or rejected from this database this is like a big problem that we see on web two today is like what types of content should and shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. And this is a very hot topic. And right now it's basically defined by the terms of service. And maybe on Twitter, it's defined by like what Elon Musk wants or doesn't want, or with the rules that he creates in the terms of service, then deputizes many different types of people, whether they be AI or humans to search the website and remove content that is not in line with the terms of service. But in the same way, this DAO creates a terms of service, and then they create a multi sig on top of this database. And the multi sig basically says it's a governance structure where it says, like, one possible example would be, like, in our Leaf DAO, there are three members. If two of the three vote to delete a piece of data from the database, then it will be deleted. What's cool about this is it creates a very, like, structured and organized way for disputes to be resolved around what types of content should or shouldn't live within this database. And of course, you can go back and audit all the different types of content that are submitted because it's all on chain. So if you think that this DAO that is managing the database is corrupt because someone has submitted 10 different leaves and they all fit within the guidelines and this DAO just keeps rejecting them, you can whistleblow to the larger audience on another platform and saying, look, this DAO is corrupt and is no longer accepting things that should be included in the database. Now, we have another interesting mechanism in place which basically disincentivizes spam. Like I said previously, if you get content into this database and then the database monetizes, your leaf is used a lot and ads are displayed against it. The database earns a bunch of money and then well, you earn a portion of that revenue as someone that's contributed to the database. Now, a lot of people want to then be in the database for that reason because they'll get earn money. Now, a bad actor could come along and say, oh, I want to submit a bunch of pictures of dirt And then I hope that I will then monetize those pictures of dirt. And this is going to take the people who are in charge of the database DAO a lot of time. They're going to have to go through all of this data and it's going to take them a lot to waste a lot of their time. So what we do is the database administrators set a deposit where each row that is being contributed to the data set has to go along. So the person also has to submit like 50 cents along with that row. And if their row is accepted into the database, they get their 50 cents back. And if their row is rejected, DatabaseDAO slashes that, and that just goes in towards funding the database. So if someone is not going to then post a bunch of pictures of dirt, because they're just going to submit 100 items and then lose $50, and they're not going to gain anything. And the idea is that this threat of losing the money will just encourage people that are there for the right reasons to contribute.
1: Yeah, I will say, though, I think it also creates some friction with actually using the application too. anytime you ask a scientist to pay for anything almost there's some friction there so i would just be cautious or i would be aware at least of how that might impact the user experience and i mean i think you'd agree right
0: totally yeah 100 agree and so if that is the case you can always set the deposit to zero in which case they can just use it freely and then sort of once spam becomes a problem or you decide to open it up to a larger audience you can start upping that deposit to a higher and higher thing to compensate the curators of the database.
1: Cool. So that's customizable, obviously, here. Can we talk more about, you told the audience about multi-sig is how this database will be managed in the DAO. And you used Gnosis, from what I understand, to manage the multi-sig. How has that experience been?
0: Yeah, it's great. So the idea is you want to create many different types of governance structure around who sits on the other side of the types of ways in which content should or shouldn't be accepted into the database. From our perspective as DBDAO, we sort of put that all into a black box where a row goes into this black box and then that row is either accepted or rejected. Now, how that black box makes the decision around what types of content should be accepted or rejected is up to the person that crafts that black box. And in this case, that black box is a gnosis multisig. And what a multisig is, is instead of just a transaction being approved by one person, it has to be approved by possibly many people or you set up the rules and how it is approved. So... In some ways, it's just one person who's managing a data out they'll just be the only person. There'll be a one of one. So one person will sign it and then it'll go through. But there's more complicated, like look at a corporate governance structure where there's the CEO and the CEO deputizes, has many deputies beneath them. And any of those deputies can sort of make a ruling, but the CEO can then overrule them if they think that ruling is wrong and remove them from the multi-sig or just overrule that individual decision. And there are many different types of protocols, uh, like boardroom is one that allow for more complicated governance structures within this black box. And I think down the road, we're going to see a lot of innovation in the types of things of how people want to set up the sort of the human side of how these dowser make decisions.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. You mentioned boardroom. That's boardroom.io. Um, I haven't really used them, but they look pretty interesting for anyone listening who's curious. Awesome. And then you have this concept of And you've already mentioned this, but each row acts as an NFT, so an ERC-721 token. Can you just describe that a little bit more in detail, why you use it and how that facilitates
0: There's two big innovations here. One is that the database is managed by a DAO. And then the other sort of innovation is that every row in the database is a NFT. And in this specific instance, there's like two types of NFTs. There's this one called the 721, which is sort of a mince them in in a sort of first one, if you just need one NFT. But then there's this other one that's called an ERC-1155, if you want to create multiple different types of NFTs. But it has a lower gas. So we use this lower gas mechanism. But the reason you want this is now every row in the database is tokenized. And so, what happens is that when you submit a row to the database, the database has a fixed schema. So, in the case of the leaf examples, like an image, a date, and a location. And then, any sort of every time you mint a row, you're minting it to conform to that schema of the database. And then, what's happening is, is that schema creates a JSON object. That JSON object is then stored onto IPFS. The reason you want to store this on IPFS is it lives forever, can be retrieved by anybody. And it also creates what's happening is you're putting an in infinite amount of data, more or less, and then hashing that down to content ID, which is a fixed size, a couple of bytes. And so now you can store any size object in your database. So then we take that CID and then wrap that in an NFT and then add that NFT to a specific database. The reason you want this is now you've tokenized all the content that's within a database so that the person who created that data can then receive rewards based on how much their data is used within that particular database, and then also give that data to another person down the road if they no longer want it in exchange for money. Or they can also add that piece of data to another database. So imagine that we've developed this leaf and it goes into this D side thing, but then someone else down the road, I also want to monetize this in another way. And I want to add my leaf to Instagram clone, like a Web3 Instagram clone. So I have this generic NFT object that I can then add to many other types of databases that exist that have the same schema, or maybe I have, and then I add it to maybe two or three different databases. And what's interesting is then this NFT, there's only one of them, will monetize from multiple different data sources. So you have a reference for this that describes this one object, which I think is valuable because oftentimes, you know, you might copy databases between them. But then, you know, if later down the road that this leaf, this particular NFT is invalidated. I don't have to invalidate it across multiple data sets. I only have to invalidate it once. So there's a lot of benefit in just having that one NFT describe one specific object.
1: Got you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's quite complicated what you're doing. I think the building block of databases basically for Web3 is sort of what you're trying to build and really interesting stuff. I understand you also include a stablecoin as part of the data curation and incentives mechanisms. Can you describe why you chose USDC specifically and then how a stablecoin helps to make this more efficient, effective?
0: Yeah, we can basically a stable coin is an ERC-20 that denotes value tied to USDC, but we can take any by default. Kind of the idea is you, people don't want to use these other things, but you can also take in, say this a DAO issues their own token and it's of limited supply. They can incentivize people to do work on their network, do work for them using their own ERC-20, but maybe that same DAO hasn't issued a token yet And the people just want to earn USDC for the work that they contribute for this database. Then they can go buy food or pay rent. We're open to many different types. I mean, that's one of the cool things about Web3 is it's all very interoperable. If some data set thinks that USDC is the right way to pay people, you just stick in the smart the address for that smart contract. But if another DAO, say the Mushroom DAO, doesn't want to get involved with money, they just care more about points and reputation. They issue a token. They create mint a million of them, and then they gradually disperse that out and people can then show on their website how much mushroom token they have to gain accreditation within this
1: community. Got it. Yeah. And that's cool that there is that flexibility and customizability within the system itself, because you're probably going to get a lot of interesting requests and questions you probably haven't thought of yet in terms of how people want to use this or build on top of it.
0: That's one of the cool things about the Web3 is it's all just very plug and play. You can just kind of mush the pieces together.
1: Yeah, interoperability is a good word for Web3, I think, just because it is natively interoperable. The idea of blockchain protocols itself, they're very interoperable. Or they're getting to become more interoperable as we start building upon them. You also use Lit Protocol and Prisma, Lit Protocol for the columns in the database to be encrypted. And that's an optional thing as well as... Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that just for our technical listeners now?
0: Totally. So the idea is a lot of this data is posted on-chain. In theory, you could access it, but you also want to be able to encrypt certain parts of it. So Lit Protocol is a way of encrypting based on NFTs. So the idea with Lit is that we encrypt a column of the database. And when you read it, you won't be able to read that column. So say we have a database of first name, last name, and email addresses with each of those as in a column. Now we want to encrypt the column side of things then to be able to decrypt it you need to then purchase an NFT which will give you the private key to be able to decrypt that data in that database. So you can develop a lot of really interesting applications because of this. So imagine you created like a Spotify competitor and you could search the names of the songs but then to be able to play the song you have to pay for the NFT that will allow you to decrypt the MP4 that's part of that for that specific song. Or Netflix, a similar thing. If you could search the index and search the database, but in order to play the movie, you need it. Or for lead gen, you need to pay to get access. You could search for like approximately what you want, but you need to pay to get access to the contact. Or for medical, you, know, you can see the results, but you can't see the underlying molecule that is used. And if you want to purchase that, you can. So that's for lit. And then for Prisma, we want to be able to interoperate with existing Web 2 applications. Prisma is something that's used pretty generically online and allows us to uh, have a drop-in URI replacement. So if there's an existing Web 2 application that wants sort of like the superpower of Web 3, they just drop in our URL that points to our database, then we can start issuing and minting NFTs for that specific web application. The point is, dbDAO is very interoperable and uses a lot of existing protocols to give our users more benefits
1: to make it work let's talk about the actual user interface and experience and i know there's different types of stakeholders that would want to be, be using db it includes like developers who think it's interesting researchers who actually want to use it to make their scientific data public or just to manage their data on a decentralized sort of cloud system like you're building i don't know if i'd call it cloud already but it's a decentralized database right then you've also listed specific stakeholders the curator the scout and the viewer so maybe you can just walk us through what the experience is like for these guys yeah
0: yeah so as you said there's basically the curator the person who comes up with the schema for the database who promotes the database so if you just have a database on your own no one's going to know about it you need to tell people about it the curator also does the role of accepting or rejecting data so for all this sort of work that the person does when the database monetizes, they get 30% of the revenue that is generated by this database. So they're rewarded for the work that they've done. Now, for doing our part of the work, the network takes 10% of the fees as well as the rewards. And then the additional 60% go towards the people who we call the scouts. And the scouts are the people that contribute data to the database. Let's take an example where a database generates $100 in ad revenue. Now, $30 goes to the curators of that database. We take 10 and then the scouts have, let's say there's 60 rows in the database and $60 goes collectively to the scouts. And because there are 60 rows in the database, each scout earns a dollar a month for the contribution that they have. So if it's over the course of a year, and they have one row or two rows, they're making $12 or $24 a month for that.
1: So let's maybe clarify what we mean by the rows. So let's use our leaf example. So there's a community of people cataloging leaves in the world from like trees and stuff. I guess you can have a column that says like color, shape, tree type, and all these different like attributes or columns basically that describe the leaf. Let's say you have 50 different columns describing a leaf. And what you're saying is whenever a researcher or a scout identifies a leaf and they put in the information in one of the rows, so leaf A has all these attributes, so they just put it into the database. And now that's it's created an NFT representing that leaf sample. Walk me through after that what happens.
0: Yes. Every time someone goes to this leaf, say you found a maple leaf. Now I go to a website and I view your maple leaf. And alongside me viewing that maple leaf is an ad for maple syrup. And that ad deposits a penny into the database. And now let's say 100 people view your maple leaf. So now a dollar will be stored in this smart contract from the ad revenue that's generated. And then at the end of the month, that ad revenue goes to you because your leaf has sort of generated that income. You fill out the attributes for that specific leaf, and then other people might view it, and it might be supported by ads, or maybe another database might query it, and then it costs a small amount of money per query. The other thing I wanted to mention is sort of how the user interface looks for someone building a database. So when you're building a database, what you're actually doing is sort of something very similar to a Google Form. So we have a drag and drop functionality where you can drag in, you want to post an image, you want to post a location, you want to post a color, and you just drag in these different form types. And then you press mint, and then that creates a form, which you can then send out to your constituent, and then they can fill it out. And every time they fill out this form with this structured schema, they're sort of minting an NFT in the background. And all that data is being collected in that database And then you can display that data and generate revenue from that data in any way you want. But the point I wanted to make is it's very easy to create a schema for a database. You don't have to, like, code anything. It's just about dragging and dropping, like, user interface elements to create a very similar to a Google Form-like experience.
1: Understood. And so these curators, you're envisioning this work being done maybe manually up front. And then in the future, how do you see the curation being done?
0: Yeah, I think down the road, we're seeing a lot of stuff with, like, chat GPT being more and more important in how systems are built. And I think there's an interesting way of like right now, all the big websites like Facebook and Twitter use a lot of AI to flag certain types of content. But with AI becoming more accessible to people, I think it could be that in addition to having a human curator, you could also have GPT, which is like this general purpose language model that is extremely powerful, be one of the curators on this multi-sig. So now the GPT chat can just automatically flagging types of content that are good or bad and marking them as for deletion. And then maybe because they're on the multisig in one hypothetical example, instead of two humans needing to delete a piece of content, the GPT will be the first person who flags it and then it only needs one more. So this will save a ton of time. And then as it becomes better and better, maybe we can rely on it more and more.
1: And I'm sure you can think about how that could be a problem or dangerous in terms of like AI bias. So something that we'll need to monitor very carefully, especially in the beginning.
0: Exactly. But I think this is a very powerful tool because like DBDAO is very much around decentralizing and democratizing content curation and moderation to some extent. And AI certainly has biases, but you don't worry about AI being biased in the same way as humans do. So. People might worry that a curator of a database has been compromised by being paid or by being some sort of relationship, like a social relationship that someone has. But I don't think that the threat model for AI is different. And no one worries about someone really paying off GPT. Maybe that'll happen in the future. But I think each of these has a different set of biases. And together, I think you have the ability to craft it in such a way that it'll create a stronger content moderation system than either one alone.
1: That's interesting. I appreciate that. Thanks. The DSI space has gotten a lot of traction in the last couple of years, but there are still challenges. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges in oh uh,
0: Yeah, I think we're still figuring out what are the types of problems that will be solved by this. And I think people are starting to get very interested in. So there's a lot of DAOs that are coming together and collecting self-report data from their Fitbit, from their own experiences in life. I think we're overcoming a lot of the hurdles in terms of getting people comfortable submitting their data, rewarding people through economic or social means. I think it's just about, it's still very early for DCI. Like this concept is only a year max, probably closer to six months old. We're still even figuring out like what are even the problems in this space, but there is some good traction starting to occur with DAOs being formed and setting up experiments and conducting research. I mean, this is the research time is also sort of like a long. PhD is multiple years. Publishing a paper might be multiple years. So I wouldn't expect for there to be results instantaneously the moment the word DSI has been established. So it might take a little bit of time. And then of course the tooling around Web3. I think there might be bottlenecks in leadership, people who are willing to lead these DSI projects, people you know have the actual underlying thought of the experiment to conduct and the insights needed to conduct impactful scientific research, or those things are always can be in short supply, but when you open right now, the types of people who do that traditionally are people who are at universities. But it wouldn't surprise me also if many types of people had those skills or were willing to learn those skills, but just didn't have the opportunity to be at a research institution. So I think that's an unknown is like maybe there are a lot more people out there who could be scientists than who are actually scientists today.
1: Yeah. And that sounds very similar to what another guest of mine shared with us, Mike Sin from CureDAO, and he's been collecting his data as well it's personal data things like your fitbit and whatnot and putting that into a some system have you heard of CureDAO? Yeah, yeah 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 definitely my listeners can show you that episode episode 105 as well so very much we're going down that route i think a lot of people are becoming more aware of the data that they're generating and New ways. And like you said, Web3 tooling is becoming slowly better. And once it becomes as convenient as Web2 tooling, I think we'll be able to create much more usable experiences for people. And like any good Web3 organization, company or group of people, community engagement is super important. And I think there's obvious examples of you trying to create more community engagement. And one example is Desize NYC. So I guess my question to you is what kind of tips, tricks, thoughts do you have around community engagement that can drive more engagement overall?
0: Yeah, I mean, working together with other, keeping it fresh and interesting. So we're always trying to work together with new DAOs to keep the content interesting, working together with other teams like yourself to keep people synapses firing in new ways. Keeping the community small, I think is actually a good tip, is really important in some ways. You don't want to grow the community such that people who are there are there for, aren't invested in it or aren't, or are there for maybe the wrong reasons. And so, a tip I would say is don't focus on like numbers, but focus on like quality of contributors as being a metric for success. I think once you have established that core, we're finding it's easier to grow than once you if you have a very weak connection between different people. That's one of the reasons we started NYC was uh, it's a way to build stronger community amongst a smaller number of people than it is around growing into a massive loosely connected community.
1: Right, and allow it to scale over time sort of naturally in a way. But you also want to prepare for that scaling too, in some ways. And what tools do you use? Like, do you have a Discord? I know your website is available as well, which I'll put in the show notes.
0: Yeah, we have a Discord. We have a DSI NYC Disc Telegram that we use. If you'd like, we'll post a link to apply for that. But yeah, we have to apply for it to keep the quality high. So we don't accept everyone into it. We want to only accept people who have demonstrated they're interested in DCI and put a small amount of effort into thinking about DCI first. And I'll have a link to that on the tab in our website. Tools, Telegram, in person events. Those are the best ones so far. I'm sure we'll be thinking of more ones down the road.
1: Awesome. So I have a few more personal questions I want to share, but is there anything else specific to DBDAO on either the technical or just like the general level that we maybe didn't cover that you wanted to share with the audience?
0: I think we went into a lot of the detail. I mean, we have an interesting caching system that we built on top to make it all very performant as well. And final resolution is all done on IPFS and we use smart contracts to assign ownership to different people around different parts of the data. And then it has a very simple to use Google form style interface to build the databases. Beyond that, I think we covered a lot of it.
1: Maybe you can share just any specific applications now or scientists now that are using it. Maybe just some examples of what kind of databases are being used or being created.
0: Totally. So we're working with HairDao to figure out different types of treatments for hair. Uh, we're working with PsychedelicsDao to have people do trip reports. We're working with a WeedDao to have people crowdsource, write a scientific experiment, validate different test results that have been published already. So I think reproducibility is a big problem in science today. Maybe you don't conduct original research for some things, but if you can just validate or invalidate certain research, that is helping a lot to conduct experiments. We're working together with build a non-D side thing to help them build their applications. There's many different types of applications beyond the D side that we're building together with and many more in the works as well.
1: Awesome. That's really good to know. In terms of an outlook for next year, 2023 and beyond, what are you guys planning to do? I you mean, know, What are some of the milestones that you guys are trying to accomplish?
0: Yeah, I think we want to strengthen our ability to create, simplify the user interface more, make sure we're kept solving the right problems, add in more complicated schemas for people. We want to start making it more interoperable with other things so that you can plug in different things. We want to be able to like modularly plug in with a data visualization or compute. And we can do that now, but I think there's ways that we can make this interface a little bit more easy to do. I think those are our main things is making it more modular for like a visualization and compute tooling to come in or making it so that it natively drop into a Jupyter notebook and you can just store your data automatically onto DBDAO.
1: On that note, you mentioned you want to have compute as part of the, uh, one of the functions. My question is, and you also have an encryption mechanism as well. Is there like a confidential type of compute mechanism you're trying to build so that you can, potentially, without seeing the data at all, apply some algorithm or f- functions in order to determine like a result of, based on a certain data set? Is that something that you're thinking about?
0: Or? We've thought about this. There's a couple different ways of doing this. The holy grail is homographic encryption, homographic computing, homographic encryption and computing. The other one is trusted computing environments. I don't think that's our bread and butter right now. So we will work together with other people to do that. But this is the holy grail You have a database of uh, students and you want to see how many of them have had a COVID vaccine. But you don't want to reveal who has had that COVID vaccine, but you want to know the percentage of students. Maybe that in the school, so you could issue insurance so that an insurer knows like the premiums that someone has to pay. So they could query your database and say like, oh, 90% of the students have been vaccinated. You're going to have very low premiums without revealing sort of any of the underlying data. So that will happen. We will get there eventually. Right now, there's a couple of technical things that are preventing it, but it is sort of on the longer term roadmap to do these sort of more complex and trusted things that you'd want to do with a Web3 database. We built a prototype, actually, that does this using, it wasn't fully SQL queryable, but it used some ZK technology, zero knowledge technology to create a ZK database for simple data science queries. And it was very interesting. We will probably pursue something like that down the road. And in the shorter term, we will work together with the more compute layers to use this database to then do compute. You basically want to take a Docker file in the highest level instance and then do compute over the database and then run these Docker instances on the various dbDAO databases.
1: Are there any other organizations that are doing something very similar to what dbDAO is doing?
0: We are the ones that are the Firebase for Web3. In terms of creating a schema, making it very interoperable, offering many different other features on top of it and plugging in. I mean, there's obviously like Postgres and Firebase, Mongo, Redis, but I don't think anyone's taking the full on Web3 approach to databases.
1: Interesting. And if anyone listening disagrees or thinks they have one, let us know in the YouTube or Telegram chat. That's the best way to do that. Do you have any favorite DLT projects you think is doing really important work? And this is like a general question. It could be like, you could say Ethereum if you want.
0: I don't know if we include this, but ZKs. ZKs are going to be the next blockchain. In many ways, ZK reduces the need for reliance. So I mean, the issue with blockchains for the most part is that the reason you use them is so that you can get verified compute or verified storage. But there's ways of doing that without needing to only rely on one central party to do that. So one of the things that's not so great about Ethereum is it's sort of a giant bottleneck because everyone wants to do compute on this one slow computer. But uh zk changes that. Other, other things that DLT cure is interesting. Fleming protocol is interesting. Anyone who's doing sort of science or creating an application, I think are the ones that I sort of, I mean, step in is interesting too, because I think, they're, you know, one of the first ones to do an application that there's some good and bad things about it, but they're the first ones to like create like a straw alternative that is based on the blockchain and uses incentives based
1: on the blockchain as well. Welcome to the Health on Chain News Corner. Google Research and DeepMind have recently launched MedPalm, an open sourced large language model aligned to the medical domain. It is meant to generate safe and helpful answers in the medical field. It combines HealthSearch QA, a new free response dataset of medical questions. MedPOM addresses questions posed by medical professionals and non-professionals by using various datasets. These datasets come from MedQA, MedMCQA, PubMedQA, LiveQA, MedicationQA, and MMLU. A new data set of curated Frequently searched medical inquiries called Health Search QA was also added to improve the Multimed QA. This model was developed on POM, which stands for Pathways Learning Model, a 540 billion parameter large language model for AI. This launch comes after ChatGPT3 has seen enormous utilization by all kinds of people and industries. These AI-enabled chat applications are getting way better Very quickly now that these technologies have reached so many people and the datasets keep growing exponentially, I wonder how, if at all, blockchain technology would be useful to better secure the data that's input and generated from the large language AI models. I'm excited to see the largest search engine, Google, continuing to push their healthcare agenda forward. Will this tool be successfully used in practice with real users and patients? That is a very important question, and I will certainly be looking for that answer as their tech improves and is rolled out to more people. I hope you enjoyed this news corner. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a review on your Apple, Spotify, or however you're listening app. And now, back to the show with Michael Fisher, founder of dbdap. Do you have a book that you've read which you say is most influential to you?
0: Yes, I would say radical markets. And it's basically how to use economic incentives to create great governance outcomes. So one of the problems we see is like if you set up an incentive for people to do certain things, a lot of people will come in and do that. And one of the things that you know we're seeing with government is sometimes the incentives are very unclear. So this book sort of outlines how to set up incentives to create uh, outcomes that are sort of good for the general population. And when I read this book, it really changed my thinking on terms of thinking about how to do protocol design and really the benefits of being able to design a good protocol. And The only reason a protocol will be good is if a lot of people use it. So it's sort of like a self-selection thing where like the good protocol designs will attract a lot of people and then we'll have a good outcome. And and there's ways of doing this sort of mechanism design to do it. And that was one of the first books I read sort of on the subject. It really did change my thinking. The other one would be like The Sovereign individual which also changed my thinking around man. the interplay between technology and encryption, like society, how these things all fit together.
1: Awesome. How do you like to stay active and exercise or stay fit or just you know physically there?
0: In New York, I'm part of a couple of running clubs. So running Central Park, sprinting, and then longer runs. So trying to get my VO2 max up and my heart rate pounding, and then also longer runs. I'm going to be running a half marathon in a few months. So I've been starting to train for that. And beyond that, maybe some weights also, and then trying not to eat too much. I think slightly just eating plants and generally trying to eat healthy like that is a good thing. And then sleep. Don't get too much sleep, but also don't skimp on it beyond what is reasonable either. You need to keep your brain functioning. I work too long and then my brain at some point just gets a little, like I can notice a drop off and just need to sleep
1: or do something else, go for a run or something. Yeah, I kind of hit a wall there after a certain point. Well, I do have one more question. Actually, it's my last question. And you can answer one of these two questions or none if you want to, I suppose. But basically, have you had an injury or some sort of medical condition personally, or maybe in your family or friends group that has affected the way that you see the healthcare industry? and then thought of some solutions for it. That's the first question. The second question you can choose to answer is, have you had a psychedelic or hallucinogenic experience with some plant substance or fungi that has changed your perspective or outlook on life?
0: I haven't done the second one. I can tell you like the first one is, I don't even think we need to get into the complicated stuff. I had to recently get a doctor's appointment and it took, a long time and very complicated to be able to do it just even for getting like literally the most routine physical checkup the wait time was like a month and very complicated bad i don't even think the existing healthcare doesn't even talk about like dealing with more complicated issues we just have even the, the most basic things to fix first before we can even get into optimizing beyond routine stuff i mean i just needed to get something checked on my foot And I ended up just solving it myself before I could even see a doctor because that didn't work. I called 10 doctors. The listing was very out of date. They didn't have appointments for a long time. And it's not cheap either. Like I got a reasonably good one. And so it's not like I'm trying to duly save money here and it still doesn't work. And I think it's a huge problem. I mean, that's one of the one things I'm very excited about. Decentralized science, where in many ways, we're fixing a real need for a lot of people because they might not be able to get care because even if they do have the opportunity, it might not exist. And if they don't have the opportunity, double doesn't exist to find healthcare. And then also, you know, it makes me think maybe if these basic things aren't being done well, probably the more complicated things aren't being done well either. If you can't even get an appointment, the likelihood that things down the road or like the medical, like that type of stuff is working very well is not very likely. So there's probably a lot that's left on the table in terms of, new types of treatments or new types of opportunities that could exist if there was like a working system. And I think the existing system is very inefficient. You know, I'm not saying that this will for sure, but I think the bar for the gold standard is lower than we think. And the cost and opportunity is easier than we think and easier to achieve than we think. So I'm very optimistic about it.
1: Yeah. And earlier you mentioned GPT, or chat GPT. And I think that can eventually also be used to help make it a little easier to get some information, medical information. And I know that's like risky because you don't want to have a patient, you know, make a decision based on some AI recommendation. But over time, some of the things can be supplemented with AI, some of the conversations.
0: But so I'll just say one other thing is I think there's this very amazing opportunity with peer-to-peer medicine. So right now we think of a doctor giving you medical advice or also like GPT giving you medical advice. But there's this also thing where if another peer of yours who has a similar type of disease has probably done a lot of research on it, perhaps even not always, but in some cases more so than a doctor and has more empathy towards you and more time to be able to devote to you. So if we can build these patient communities using data as an initial nucleation point for people to gather, there's this giant opportunity where... Maybe you could have other patients supporting other patients. There will be roles for each, but this is an untapped opportunity, perhaps.
1: That's a great point. And I do think that that's true. And you already have some patient communities that have formed over the last 10 years just used because of the internet. And I think having a provenance of data and a more trusted community would even make that sort of idea explode even more. So in a good way.
0: (laughs) Patients like me, I mean, I've seen that. But like one of the problems on patients like me is a lot of the data is really unstructured. And so it becomes this forum, which is great, but also you could imagine something well put together and is able to be used by other people, structured data.
1: I think that's something they're probably aware of and trying to figure out as well. Michael, I just want to thank you again so much for spending your time with me and talking to me about dbDAO and decentralized databases, dsci, and really the future of healthcare and science overall. Yeah, just thanks again. Do you have anything else you want to share with the audience? Any last final takeaways?
0: No, I think, uh, thank you also, Ray, and anyone who's interested, come by DCI NYC, basically at the beginning of every month, and learn more about it, and learn about interesting projects. And I love your show. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, all you cyberpunk, health warriors, and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.